0: The prophet Jeremiah grieves for his people. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were water's... And my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land for they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me declares the Lord. God's word to us today.
1: So close your eyes as we begin our sermon. I'm going to lead you through a prayer exercise. Hopefully they won't remain closed or get a few minutes at least before they're closed again. We'll see. Heavenly Father, would you impress upon our hearts the struggles in our own life, our own lives, and the pain and sorrow of this world. So imagine now, I'm I'm already in a place of hope for you, so it's okay if it takes you to the end of the sermon or longer to get there. Ask you to imaginatively hold all the concerns that you have today what is it that you're afraid of what is it that you can't bear what is it that is painful to you and uncertain if you could carry these things is it like a weight do you need others to help you But what if they're carrying all of their things? Would you help them? Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see and our hearts to love. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a younger Christian, I memorized quite a bit of Scripture, and I'm glad that I did. And if you haven't done that, it's not too late. I think given our uh, neurological development, it might be easier to memorize scripture when you're younger, but uh, it's a good uh, healthy thing to do for your brain, Uh, and it's a very good healthy thing to do for your spirit, and it's a blessing to this world. But as a young Christian growing up, you get certain things into your mind from what people teach you and tell you, you know, be in the world but not of the world. Did you hear that one when you were growing up in churches? Romans twelve two says, "Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your." You know the verses, if you right. But Acts chapter seventeen twenty four says, "God made the world and everything in it." Wait a minute! Don't be conformed to the world, but then this positive assessment, or John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. In any religious community, Christian or otherwise, there is a tension one among many and that is the question do we move towards the world or away from the world and depending on the religious communities of which you've been a part and their histories uh, and you could even go to various board meetings and the rest and see this tension play out and you would have experienced one or the other there was an interesting photo essay in the new york times last sunday well afternoon i came across it the pictures were beautiful they're of a Mennonite community in Belize. Um, and Mennonite is my background, Weeb, very Mennonite name. I'm looking at the people who have any, any connection out to the Fraser Valley or wherever else that Mennonites gather. And there's actually a Canadian connection to Mennonite people in Central and South America. Uh, and there's a little bit of back and forth. And some people have come, like my, my grandparents came from Russia to Saskatchewan, and then down to southern Ontario, and some moved to places like Abbotsford and the rest. But in those communities, the ones that were tighter, some of those really tight communities trying to protect themselves from the world moved um, to places in Central and South America. And Belize, there's one of these colonies, these groups. This is a group of young men from that uh, group. You can see they've got phones in their hands, which is interesting. We've heard about uh, Mennonites or Amish and technology. Um, this picture I don't know if that makes you feel really good and kind of hopeful and wouldn't it be nice to just have a simple life or whether it makes you say thank goodness I don't have to live like that but there is something appealing about this away from isn't there something that makes it seem so simple and wouldn't it be nice to have a simpler life it's that tension do we move towards the world or away from it the the little in-betweens in this photo essay, they had some reflections and they were thoughtful. They pointed out that the relationship, relationship to technology in these Mennonite communities is not to consider that technology is inherently evil. That's not what they think. But rather, what does the technology do to community? Because when you are moving away from the world to protect your faith is the idea, right? You need to protect the community. And so here's one of the quotes. For instance, their rejection of cars for personal use is not because they believe motorized vehicles are inherently bad. They use tractors for farming. But rather, their emphasis is on the importance of community. If one were to have access to a car, one would be tempted to leave. Yes, I think one might be. But the limited travel range of horses and buggies keeps Mennonite settlements close knit. The question, though, of course, is how do those communities sustain, how do they remain viable? And really, I mean, there's probably more complex than this, but the answer is they have to keep having babies. And it has to be kind of threatening in some way, spiritually or otherwise. Potentially, there's positive, not just negative, but for young people to leave. I was preaching at St. Timothy's this morning and asking them to consider the same question. And it's easier for them. They're a smaller church, but even for us, right? What happens if generation and the next generation isn't interested? Do we move away from the world or towards the world? I tell you this because this for me and I hope for you or I'm telling you it should be for you, okay? The direction of our series on prayer is holds this tension. Where do we move away from the world and where do we move towards? That Motion towards the world is the evangelical motion to bear witness, to pray for and on behalf of others, not simply for self. That's why we've given the subtitle to the series, Prayer, and the subtitle, Engaging with God for the Good of the World. And it's why we started with blessing. The question is not how can you oppose the world. That's not a Christian question. Jesus Christ towards the world. He moved to us. The question is, how can you bless the world? We can pray for deliverance, for ourselves, and we can pray for others, and then today, lament. Not a lot of people look forward to praying prayers of lament. It's a tough word, lament is. It's deeper and stronger even than grief. Even if I just say the word lamentations, that book, Jeremiah, which Anne read from for us and lamentations are like one book in scripture they're separate but really what separates them is time and some style but it's jeremiah praying it's a tough word stronger than grief it can come like a terror lament lament or lamentation and it's tough because it presupposes pain so we don't look forward to lament because we know that lament means something painful happened to occasion the lament but lament is or ought to be part of human experience. To think otherwise is to live in denial. More specifically, we need lament. Lament is an appropriate response to pain, and we will experience pain and suffering. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many funerals I've done in the last number of years. I mean, people really don't want to call them funerals anymore. Memorials, and there's differences and reasons for various names. But now you're really not supposed to call them memorials. They're celebrations of life. But as a pastor called particularly into communities where it's not a number of religious people or church-going people, I always, and I try not to diss that term, celebration of life, but I'm always aware that part of my key role is to help people mourn. Lament is something that is a call in our Christian lives. We will experience pain and suffering, and if we don't lament, then that pain becomes more debilitating and more oppressive, not less so. But our call is to lament for the sake of the world, not our own self only. And this is something that you can learn in your life and bless the world with. But it requires maturity, and we don't necessarily have a lot of spiritual maturity anymore. It seems like the only thing that matters now is financial maturity. You know, I, I saw the term in, when I was watching, I don't know, sports or news or something, financial wellness. It made me laugh. It's wonderful. I mean, I know it's true too, sure. But it seems to be all that's left now. So many times. What about spiritual maturity as Christians and even for non-Christians? Lament would be part of your spiritual maturity. Something that you can learn and bless the world with. And there's not much better guide for lament than the prophet Jeremiah and the book that bears his name and then the next book, which he also writes called Lamentations. The only better guide, of course, is our Lord himself, who I was struck by this at St. Timothy's this morning as we went through kind of the importance of lament. And then they have communion every Sunday. We do today as well. But uh, they spend quite a bit of time around communion. And it really struck me that the end of lament is sacrifice. Jesus gave his life. He entered into our pain to the point of self-sacrifice. Our pain can lead us to become self-focused or self-centered. Physically, this would be easy to demonstrate. Uh, It's hard to give this analogy. You have to try to imagine it. If any one of you all of a sudden right now experienced intense physical pain, you would be able to think about nothing else except that intense physical pain. Right? You would become a lot more self-focused, maybe even more self-focused than you are right now. You would just think, why is that guy up the front making noise? You might think that already, but for sure you would. Pain, by its nature, can lead us to become self-focused, and sometimes that's necessary. The trouble is, and many of you have dealt with this, one of the difficulties is that our spiritual and mental and physical pain can also lead us to become self-centered, but that becomes a little more murky and hard to deal with. So those of you who have dealt with mental health difficulties, particularly depression or anxiety, and you can think of depression, one of the, one of the curses of this type of thing is that you, sp- you can begin to spend a great deal, an inordinate, almost entire amount of time thinking about how you feel. It becomes really, really self-focused. Then you can make a next step and think, why aren't other people thinking about how I feel? And let me give you part of a reason as a pastor. Because they're thinking about how they feel and wondering why you're not thinking about them. Pain does this to us. So, it takes tremendous maturity to grow and to move. And to realize that even in the midst of our pain, we ask the Holy Spirit, we ask our God, would you make me aware not only of myself, but of others. But you can't bear your own pain, let alone the pain of others, right? Well, yes, and this would be terribly debilitating, except we have hope in Christ who bears all pain. Our faith is so in need in this world. This world needs your faith, not your condemnation, by the way. Your faith Sometimes the Christian relationship to the world, any religious community, but I know, of course, my experiences is within the Christian church, can, can be set up as if, and the Christian church should really be the one that's not like this. Other faiths, as I do like inter-religious studies or whatever you realize, there's a lot of other faiths that really focus on right and wrong. The Christian faith was never supposed to be about right and wrong to start with. But in in religious relationship to the world, we can think that right and wrong is what matters most. And society is kind of going this way, and there's scriptural and contemporary evidence for that. But I would argue that being aware of what's wrong in the world will not necessarily provide you the energy that you need to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ. I could congratulate you hour upon hour for being right about things and being sure about what's wrong with something else. And you might, as I say, well, be correct about that. It just might not help you in bearing witness to the love of Jesus Christ. You could look at Jesus Christ himself and how he related to the wrong and bad around him and say, well, wait a minute, he moved towards... Our relationship with the world if we want to help people see the love of Jesus Christ for all that relationship means that we ought not to lead with I mean how would how would you like somebody to treat you like this here is what's wrong with you rather to bless to pray for deliverance and today we're considering to lament and so we get to this text and I'll tell you right now that the sermon is not over yet but I'm aware in my mind to some degree That this text is so beautiful that, and maybe you can play with this in your mind, in a way this is where the sermon ends. It finds its wholeness. Always in Christ, but these words mean the depth of them is powerful. Some of the most beautiful things in our world have a darkness to them and a pain. That's hard for people (laughs) Sometimes you can feel most alive in very difficult circumstances. And in a world that pushes away from pain, sorrow, death. But sometimes, and this is where lament is occasioned, things get so strong that we don't have the option of pushing away anymore. We feel like we're swallowed up. Jeremiah In one of those times that for me to even reference, because I've faced relatively little suffering in my life, I look at Jeremiah's words here and I think, oh, what was the depth of his pain? He says, and it's poetic. And if you don't like poetry, I apologize to you that a good bit of scripture is poetry. And it'd be better for you to learn how some poetry works because you'd read better, pray better. It's possible that God likes poetry more than you do. Because here's the words from Jeremiah. Metaphor is all through here, but it's so beautiful. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. You can take that with you. Memorize that scripture. Turn on the news. Turn on the most partisan thing you could think of. I won't even name it this week, but it's coming in the United States at least. And instead of thinking what side you're on or who's right and who's wrong, think, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. Think about what it means to lament over the pain and sorrow in the world. Jeremiah had experienced devastation. He knew that more was coming. This is in Jeremiah 9. By the time of Lamentations, uh, it would be almost complete. The city that he was praying over would be utterly destroyed. Death and destruction all around. That's what's happening here. When Jeremiah prays in the book of Jeremiah, the city is headed to that destruction, and in Lamentations, it has experienced that destruction But in Jeremiah, because sometimes the word of the Lord comes like a terrible, terrible pain. The prophecy, the word of the Lord. What he saw coming. So for Jeremiah, what he saw coming for the city and for the people was so real that he experienced the anguish even before it had been fulfilled. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. It's a beautiful but harsh picture. And before the destruction of the city, Jeremiah declares God's word and warning, and for this he is reviled and ridiculed, and his life is threatened, and he experiences anguish not only from the disdain of the people, but also, as we say, from the burden of the word of God. By the time of lamentations, the city has been destroyed and judged, and the whole book is a prayer of lament over the city. Different things come to our minds, obviously, differently, different memories. For some reason, the song's even in my head now. I think of the Bruce Springsteen song, My City of Ruin, which was written after 9-11. And really, he quotes Lamentations. And what he's doing is looking over the city and seeing such devastation and destruction. Lamentation starts with, how lonely lies the city that was full of people." And then the whole of the book is just sorrow and terror. Almost the whole of the book. And Jeremiah is weeping not for himself, but for his people. And of course, the height of this fulfillment, weeping not just for self, but for others, is Jesus Christ our Lord. You can picture him in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. You can picture him praying over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. The sin and pain and sorrow of the world even your own, and instead of distancing from the world, Jesus Christ enters into the pain. So for Jeremiah, this lament moves from personal to communal, even to universal, and we reflect the love of Jesus Christ by taking up lament. So the Jewish people had a frame for, in which they put their lament because the prophets spoke not only of the coming sorrow, pain, destruction, and judgment, But they also said God would not abandon his people. There was still hope. Even places like Ezekiel, and there's references in Jeremiah and others. Promises like that, that God would give the people a new heart. He would renew even the people. So there's mourning and grieving. They would even set up, Jewish people would, feasts for this. One called the Ninth of Av. It's actually spelled A-B. The Ninth of Av where they would mourn and grieve communally. But that frame of Jewish thought was that God would give them a new heart. And the frame of Christian thought is that our lament always take, takes place within the larger frame of hope in Jesus Christ. We can lament. That's why this isn't a down, it shouldn't be, sermon or Sunday or whatever. We can lament because we have a larger hope. We're free To admit the pain in our own lives and in the lives of those beside us and around us. Without hope in Jesus Christ, of course I can't bear even my own pain. This is the Christian Declaration. Eugene Peterson, in a book written to young ministers, telling them things they need to know for upcoming ministry... One of the things that he says is when a pastor encounters a person in trouble, the first order of pastoral ministry is to enter into the pain and to share the suffering. I want to say that's not just for ministers, and don't use that simply to judge me. Use it to judge yourself. Because this is the call for every Christian. When a Christian encounters a person in trouble, including even trouble that is by their own doing, even their own sinful doing, when a, person, when a Christian encounters a person in trouble, the first order of their witness is to enter into the pain and to share the suffering. Do you know that? I mean, there's evidence in the Christian church in the world that it's not the thing that non-Christians think most about Christians. But this is advice to all of us. The problem is that in our world, suffering is often seen as deficiency And in broad strokes, there are secular responses to this, and there are religious responses to this. So a secular response to to suffering as a deficiency is to say something like, well, it's a celebration of life, and not to admit the terrible, terrible pain. Or it's to fix it or deny it. This is not all bad. There's wonderful, wonderful people working in secular institutions to try to help people in suffering. But there is at times the idea that the height of our human abilities will kind of alleviate suffering. That's sometimes a humanist response. A religious response, response wrong-headed, is that we can fix the suffering of others. So if somebody comes to us and they have an illness or they have a pain or they have, and we say, well, I'll just pray it. I'll, I'll deal with this. We'll pray it away. That is not to belittle healing, which we need to experience more and see more and pray for more. But let me tell you something, those who are into praying prayers of healing, which is a good thing. Your prayers of healing will not alleviate the suffering in this world. Do you know that? And there will be many times you pray prayers of healing and the person is not healed. Physically, at least. So what's the Christian thing to do? Keep praying but realize that your first Christian call is not to fix anything. Your first Christian call is to enter into the suffering and the pain, and that's what lament is. Some of you, I have experienced this in my life, even though I've experienced relatively little suffering. I've had people who've wanted to just pray away whatever suffering I am experiencing. And even though these might be really, really well-meaning people, what I feel is a distance, actually, so often. I feel like there's maybe not a seeking an understanding of my actual pain. There's just a desire to get it away. They failed to be with me. The first order of witness is to enter into the pain and share the suffering and this is the gift of lament. The first call is Christian. Isaiah 53. Listen to what our Lord has done. Surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows. In the Gospels, Jesus Christ says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened or heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. He says that he'll take our burden and he'll give us his because his is light. And he is the one who said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So can you understand that lament is a gift that you have as a Christian for the world? It does not mean that you walk around all, you know, sullen and depressed. In fact, I'm convinced that the people who can lament best are the ones who also know true hope and joy. If you're down all the time, if you're, I don't mean depressed clinically and that kind of thing, but if you just kind of always, oh, woe is the world and woe is me, It's really hard for you to lament on behalf of other people. But if you know hope and joy... So for me, one of the deepest blessings of my job and this call is to be present at some of the most painful times in the lives of people in the community. Being present at death and presiding over times of sorrow. Uh, I don't take these times for granted. And often a minister or a chaplain is called into a situation, there are other professionals, I mean, if you call a minister a professional, but there are other non-family members there, but most of those non-family members are there to fix something or do something, and the minister chaplain properly is there simply to share in the grief, to hold it. And it's a beautiful privilege. So, I've told you before, I've been called to the hospital another one that just stays in my mind when a young couple has just faced the devastating loss of a stillbirth. They've called the chaplain because the mom can't release the baby from her arms. And it's hard because you know I'm emotional, so. but by God's grace, somehow at times like that, you can be strong and get through, and I know I have to there. But even in those moments, or being around the bed of someone who is dying and their family's there, and invariably, like four or five people say to you, I'm not religious, but I'm glad you're here, that type of thing, like they're apologizing. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. And then you quickly, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, take up this gift of lament for these people. And properly done, even sometimes without words, people's response is astounding. And then, so many times when I'm walking back to the car from the hospital or whatever, then I can break down or sometimes I wait till I sit in the car and I cry out like that with that young family. Why, oh Lord, are so many things like they're not supposed to be? Why do they have to bear this? Oh, that my head were a fountain, were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. Sometimes. See, we live in a world now where people want to Eliminate suffering around dying. And I don't mean to take a stance on an issue one way or the other. But there's something at least that's missing when we too quickly do that. Our suffering, even our very suffering at times, can be a gift for the world. Because when you are suffering, it helps you to see the suffering of other people. If you can be mature. Jeremiah's Lamentations, the book, and I've told you this many times, but I don't care. It's something that you need to remember. So the book of Lamentations, and if you had a Bible with you, you could open it, and you can see that Lamentations is one of the most um, lengthy acrostics in our scripture. You know what acrostic means? It means it's structured usually it, by letters or way of an alphabet, so it's it's got a form to it, right? And in the Hebrew language, this poem of Lamentations is structured as... There's 22 letters there, 26 in our alphabet, but it's structured as A, B, C, D, E, F. So chapter 1, how many verses? 22. Chapter 2, how many verses? 22. Why? Because when people can barely breathe, when they're screaming out in anguish, one of the gifts of Jeremiah's lament is to have some kind of order that they can remember. I don't even know what it means to feel alive anymore. And the first step, back to life is someone helps you grieve so it's a b c d all the way to the end chapter 4 and chapter 5 22 verses each chapter 3 this the middle chapter of the book is 66 verses that's why because it's a a a b b b c c c interesting at least isn't it you learned something today unless you've been like you know you've told me this 10 times anyway Where that first kind of alphabet would would end if the acrostic was structured this way, but I think it's on purpose, where verse 21 becomes verse 22 in chapter 3, what's there? The whole book is nothing but everything's destroyed, people are dying. You wouldn't read this book in church, Lamentations, because it's too stark and gross and horrible and terrible. The whole of the book is like that. In chapter 3, where verse 21 turns to verse 22, what's the scripture? But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the middle of lament is hope. In fact got to pray that god would give you imagination right the whole book moves around that verse it's the center we can lament in this world and i'm wanting to send you out from this place asking god to help you become more aware of the pain and sorrow in other people's lives so that you can lament on their behalf if you do that you will bear witness to jesus christ Instead of turning away, you turn towards. We've got a challenge in the 100 days of prayer. I think it's by Thursday. And I do warn you that you need to be pretty mature for this one. And that's by Thursday the challenge to think even people who might consider themselves your opponents or the people in the world that you think are the wrong ones or the bad ones. Stop thinking about what it is that's wrong or bad about them and ask God to reveal to you their pain. And lament. We can lament because we have hope. Because firstly, God has turned towards us, not away from us, in Jesus Christ. We are not abandoned to pain, loss, or death. And we can lament because as Revelation, the end of our scripture says, and this is fulfillment in Jesus Christ, that one day every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more crying. And no more death. There is now. And so I'm proud to cry when the Spirit moves me. But one day, and it's when I really get emotional, knowing one day all will be well. So understand that you are taking up a sacred task as you lament for this world. This sacred call to lament on behalf of the world is a Christian call and if we do this well if we do this well people will see the love of Jesus Christ in us so now we turn to communion and I want to give that picture as we do just before I pray it was Grady father Grady he's ordained now in the Anglican church who was the celebrant this morning at Saint. Timothy's for the communion and of course they have a number of um, liturgical readings and prayers they do before communion and Grady's wonderful because he loves that stuff so much that he really enters in. but I was sitting on the side here like where the ministers sit and he was they had their big altar here and he was presiding over communion and I could see his face and I could look in a couple times and I could see tears in his eyes and I thought there's something here both with this lament and the end of lament that where lament brings you to is sacrifice. And we can look at this and know that Jesus Christ, hear this now, he bore the pain and sin of the world and he defeated death. So as you take the bread and take the cup, you're declaring your trust in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sin. And you are also asking God to help you to reflect the love of Jesus Christ in the world. You come here. Why? You come to church so that you can be sent from here reminded of who you are. So you can live in this world where there is tremendous pain. And you can be a blessing. So as you receive that communion, would you pray for the revelation of the Holy Spirit? We always say that you are welcome to receive communion if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. And we also like to say that there are times when if you know something needs to be put right in your life and the Holy Spirit is um, directing you in that way, then sometimes it's helpful to let the communion pass and pray over things. Maybe go make something right with somebody else and then next time we have communion, you can take that communion again. That's up to you. Let me pray and then the ushers will come forward and we'll hand up communion. So Lord Jesus Christ, we would ask you as we turn now to this table to remind us that this is the center of all things. And we call this to mind as I look at the bread and the cup that you, Lord Jesus Christ, on the night you were betrayed, you broke that bread. You said it was your body. You took the cup. And we know that this cup is forgiveness. Your blood for the forgiveness of our sin. We thank you that you didn't turn away from us, even even at our worst. We ask forgiveness for how we so often turn away from others. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we receive. We declare your death until you come. We know that this is sign and symbol that in the end all in you will be made well. We pray in your name. Amen.